0: So we literally went to paper stores and bought wrapping paper and we made these kind of concept cans and we went and stood outside of Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and we approached people, mostly women, leaving the wine aisle with their boxes and we said, hey, do you have five minutes? And if they said yes, we would say, what do you think about this?
1: I'm Jim Huffman and this is If I Was Starting Today. Today. A collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I speak with the co-founder of Maker Wine. It is a D2C juggernaut that is really owning the category of canned wine. Yes, the premium sister of Franzia and boxed wine, but it's more than meets the eye with this one. So first with Kendra, she's extremely impressive, painfully smart, started her career studying neuroscience, got her MBA at Stanford, and now she's in the direct-to-consumer game of wine. And what's interesting is I hear the story of the market opportunity of really craft beer is having a movement. What's happening with wine is canned wine, the next category and distribution channel. They will partner with vineyards to actually can their wine and then do the direct consumer model of taking it to consumers. And their growth has been explosive. They launched during COVID. And what's really interesting is they use a B2B tactic to grow in the consumer space. And since then, they've just taken off. They've got over 200 vineyards they work with. They sold over 10,000 plus boxes of canned wine. And they have over 1,000 reviews. And they're really just getting started. So if you're looking at taking an old business model and making it new again, this one's super interesting. And hearing how they hustled in their early days, getting in front of people at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods to see if they had validation with their product. But it's really fun to see her make the... Big leap in our career and what they've done to get some impressive traction. So really hope you enjoy this episode with Kendra. So Kendra, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Jim. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah. So how do we know each other? When I say know each other, we've we've been friends for nine minutes now. How do we know each other? <laughs>
0: We got connected through a good friend of mine, actually, from my business school. And I don't know, how how do you and Mike know each other?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm on the board of a company with this guy named Mike Ryan, and he's the chairman of it. And it's funny, like going to this board, it's this guy that has an MBA from some place called Stanford. I'm like, oh, here we go, an MBA. And he has been so impressive. He is one of the sharpest guys I know. I love people that are real like original thinkers and approach things in a thoughtful way. And it's I, I try and channel Mike whenever I'm going into really thoughtful feedback. So I, I think maybe that investment in the BA was worth it. So he he's a really impressive dude.
0: Impressive, funny, humble, the total package. But now I'm grateful to Mike for linking us up.
1: Yeah, no, really cool. And so you guys are in a category that's near and dear to my heart around wine. So first, Give, give the spiel so people know, like, what is what is Maker Wine?
0: Maker is the leading craft can wine company on the market today. We have the highest rated and awarded wines out there in a can. And we're also special because every wine comes from a different winery and winemaker. And so in a you know growing sea of canned wines, what really makes Maker stand out is you know who made your wine, where it came from. And actually, can learn a lot more about that without having to trek to Napa, Sonoma, or the winery yourself. So, really trying to reimagine wine from grape to glass. And, you know, as millennial women, kind of putting ourselves at the center.
1: Yeah. And I've worked with some wine brands that have tried to crack the code on D to C, direct to consumer. And, like, obviously, like Wink had an amazing rise, and then they couldn't land the plane on retention. And you all were kind enough to send me some canned wine. We're like elevating Franzia from the bag to the can. And here's why I really like it is because as like my wife and I are wine drinkers, if it's like a Tuesday or Wednesday, like I don't want to open a bottle. And it's like, we're not trying to like go to town. It's like, I just want a little glass. And what's really nice about your product is that it is in a can. It's still really good. And you're not opening a full bottle because I think some other companies have had issues when they're doing the like wine subscription where it's just their vineyard. So I, I think you have a really smart go-to-market strategy and approach with with the way you all are doing that. And again, I'm not just saying that because you gave me some free booze. I, it was fun to go through the like the unboxing experience and, and everything. But like, how are you able to work with the, the vineyards to get the wine, get it canned and in a way where like the economics work out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, on the kind of production winemaking side, we are so fortunate to now work with more than 15 wineries across California, Washington, and soon to be Oregon. And we really let the winemakers and the wineries do what they do best, which is grow grapes in the vineyards, be amazing farmers, organic, sustainable, biodynamic, crush grapes, you know, pick them, ferment them, and actually make the wine. And one of the things that we found as we, you know, moved into the wine industry was these people are incredible. They're farmers and artists and geologists and they're doing great wine the right way, but they really didn't have that route to market. And so that's why our mission is to shine a light on these independent producers and the whole company, you know, exists to kind of lift them up. In terms of the unit economics, you know, we take possession of the wine when it is in the can. So the winemaker Is making the juice. It's on-site at the winery. It's in their barrels. It's in their tanks. And just like you were bottling it, we send actually a mobile canning line to the winery. We can straight from the tanks. Alongside our winemaker partners, it's super fun if you ever want to come out and work work an assembly line for a day or two. And then from there, we actually, as you mentioned, specialize in D2C, direct-to-consumer shipping. So last year, D2C was more than 80% of the revenue of the company. And truthfully, like there is a code to be cracked in D2C wine. And you named a couple of, you know, companies that have come before us and we've been students and stewards. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a bone to pick with people who say that D2C wine won't work. And there's really two key aspects to making, you know, that side of the the math work. One you touched on is retention. It is, you know, expensive to reach customers and There's a lot, you know, if you're going to pay anything to acquire customers online and windy to see, they just have to stick around for a long time in order for that model to work. The second thing that is super critical is the actual economics of each shipment. So, the, you know, the retention or the lifetime value is looking at that customer's lifetime. For us, we spend a lot of time looking at what are the economics of this shipment? And so our average order values are well above $100. And when you you crosswalk that with good retention, what it means is that we have the ability for every, you know, we're going to talk more about the Can Club, but for every new subscriber or Can Club member that we get, we know that we're going to retain, engage. And actually, if we do our job right, they're going to be spending more money on Maker and getting more wine from Maker a year from now and that you know both the lifetime customer economics and the individual order and purchase economics we spend a lot of time making sure that all checks out because if you don't do it right if you are shipping a, a low aov product in wine shipping costs adult signature requirements it's a huge percentage so if you can get an you know an aov up above 200 you have a much you know stronger business better margin profile you can do a lot more with that than those aovs under
1: 100 yeah, you nailed it. Like with Wink, they, they were phenomenal at customer acquisition, but they were like $30 for four wines, free shipping, and like shipping alone costs 30 bucks sometimes. And it's like, how do you land a plane? They they couldn't flip it on on the retention. But what I love that you're doing is the ALZ, and for me, like again, I'm a market of one, the UK use case of the can is so high that we would do that because we have like subscription wine from like a vineyard we like, so we know we want those bottles, but like you're satisfying a whole nother use case in need that for me, I think is really sticky, right? So, so well done there. But I'm, I know we're getting, I started off real hot with the tactics and stuff. Let, let's, I like to go in this in a linear fashion. Talk to me about Kendra, pre-wine entrepreneur. Like what was your kind of like path leading up to this? And even that inflection point of you going to um, business school and and doing this, but I'd love more color.
0: Sure. Well, I did not come from the crazy wild world that is Silicon Valley. I am a Midwesterner, born and raised. I was born in Chicago, but I've lived in Minneapolis. I spent a year in New Orleans. I did. I had worked in consulting for several years, but truthfully, my background was in healthcare. It was in consulting, and it was. Very much not in this world of startups and venture capital and high growth companies, right? And I was fortunate beyond my wildest dreams to wake up one day in business school at Stanford. And it really did, you know, it really did change kind of a lot of things in my life. It changed my perspective. It showed me that people that looked like me and came from the places that I had come from could start companies. That wasn't something that I had considered before. And going into business school actually the week before we started i met my now best friend co-founder partner in wine sarah and we first handed off as friends and lovers of food and bev. sarah's background was completely opposite to mine she was born and raised in the bay area in the heart of the american wine country she knew about startups she'd you know worked in growth marketing and advised different startups throughout san francisco and she came into business school knowing that she wanted to start a company and so we were at these kind of you know two different poles and she also was a total food and bevvy and once you you know when you get to know sarah she had a craft beer blog that she would seo optimize for fun she worked with a bunch of the craft breweries around town she had an underground supper club that she would do the beer pairings and a chef friend you know they'd co-host in people's homes and so that caring about craft and where things come from and the stories behind what we you know eat and consume and drink, that is really central to who Sarah is. And I wanted to be her friend because she was cool and she knew all the best places to go visit. And so that was what brought us together. But to answer your question, I didn't come from a world of startups and venture, and I didn't know that that was what I wanted until I saw it around me and you know truthfully have never looked back i think if there's folks listening that are considering you know starting their first venture taking that plunge you know try it on for size first you know take little baby steps in but if it's something that you're curious about you have that itch it's just it's nagging at you you got to do it there's nothing more aligning in my life personally than aligning my my work and my passions to you know, now what I get to do every single day. And so I am a huge proponent of, you know, I go back to Nashville. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. And I think it's just important for people all over to see, yeah, that you can start companies, create products too. But that was how I met Sarah. And that was how I
1: found myself out in wine country for the last six years now. That's that's so cool. And did you go to business school? Because that's a big kind of transition in the career. Was it Because you wanted to be an entrepreneur or you're like, you know what, let me see what doors or opportunities open by making this move.
0: I would have never said I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't even like have that thought candidly. And I'm embarrassed to say that, but I just didn't even know it or think it. I really, I'm a nerd. I wanted to go back to school and I wanted the time and space in my life to imagine different paths forward. I was so focused on my work at the time. I loved my job. And I kind of had this aha moment that unless I gave myself a half a step back and some extra time and space to do that thinking, I was probably just going to keep going down the trodden path that I was on. And I wanted the opportunity to rethink that. That was what made me want to go to business school.
1: Very cool. So let's let's talk about is business school the right move? Because like I'm actually non an opinionated person. I do have opinions on MBA and I'll give you my context. And I think there's like one use case where I think it makes sense. I think you nailed you nailed it. So like you're so just so you know my jaded background, I worked in investment banking for a while where you had to like get an MBA to like get promoted. And I feel like it was just this tax you had to pay. So I'm like was studying for the GMAT, doing the whole thing. And I just like, I couldn't do it anymore. I was in New York. I was like, I physically cannot take this test. And I left and like went to startups and did this path. However, for me, it's like an MBA, if you can get into one of the elite schools, the doors and network it can open is huge. Because like the biggest thing in business are your relationships, like whether people want to admit it or not. And if you can get access to get a shortcut to some amazing people go for it. But if you're going to go to a place that doesn't have that network, I feel like you're potentially burning 100 to 200K on fire and you should just use that to launch a company. So that's my, so I think you and like Mike nailed it because it's like you get into it's like Stanford, go for it. Obviously it allowed you to meet your co-founder and it's opened this door, but like what are the pros and cons of it for people that are thinking through it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a I think you're, you know, spot on and very uh, sage in some of your observations. But I think like most things in life, there's not a right answer here. And it's a super personal decision. Right. And so for some people, um, going back to graduate school is not an option. And I do not think it is necessary by any means in starting a company, in building out your network. And I think there's ways to go about the kind of core value adds of an elite business school if you decide that isn't the right path to go for you. If you are someone who wants to be in school, wants to, you know, my undergraduate degree was in neuroscience and medicine, health and society. I've never taken a like base accounting or econ class in my life, right? It's like, what am I, if I want to move into true business, I need to kind of double down on that too a little bit. So there was kind of that thought But there's so many ways out there right now. And, like, the you know, between so much online, so many things in person right now, building out your network, getting the time and space in your life to do that thinking. These are all things that you can do outside of spending 100 or 200K on an MBA. So, is it helpful? Absolutely. For the right people, it's great for the wrong people if you don't want to do it do, absolutely do not like it is not a silver bullet it's not a catch all and unless you want to spend a couple of years really introspecting and thinking about what you want to do for the rest of your life just don't just don't go right because it's it really is like that i think is the best use of it and so i don't know it's it's a non answer i'm going to dodge the question but it's a personal decision
1: That was a good non-answer. I think the fact that you didn't have a business no graduate, and then you can like learn real quick in a place like Stanford's super impressive. So you're getting your MBA, you meet your now co-founder. Talk about that moment. What was the process of Maker Wine coming to be something that was more than just a half-baked idea? And when you decided to kind of make that leap and what that even means?
0: So Sarah and I had first hit it off as friends as I mentioned, and we had a few classes together. And so naturally as friends, we wanted to be in the same group projects uh, so we could hang out together. And we started to learn that we really enjoyed working together and also that we had really complementary skill sets and interests. And this is my like, you know, key insight, picking a founder advice is because everybody says, don't have multiple MBAs on a founding team. Too redundant, they're going to clash. You know, who wears the hat? I actually think for me and Sarah, we had such complementary interests and skill sets and backgrounds that one plus one was so much greater than two for the two of us. And we felt that from the get go. Here's what I'll tell you about Sarah having come from San Francisco, going to business school, knowing that she wanted to start a company. She was kind of on the hunt, right? She had hunches about her ideas. She was trying to put together the team. And it was really, you know, it was wild. There was a moment, probably March or so of our first year of business school. And Sarah came to me and she said, I have this idea. I feel deeply in my core that it needs to exist in the world. And I'm going to spend, you know, the next several years doing that. I know I need a co-founder and I want it to be you, right? And I was like, ha ha, that's hysterical, good, you know, good joke. I'll drink a glass of wine with you and help you think through this. But I, again, had never really imagined that as myself. And Sarah said, no, out of all of our classmates at business school, I think you and I could really run at this and, and make a big dent. And her pitch was shockingly close to the you know, the story and ethos of maker today, she said, I've watched a revolution happen in craft beer. There's been this huge adoption of cans, innovations in packaging, trying to reach this newer, younger audience. You're seeing craft exploding. And as a millennial woman, honestly, like I can't drink a lot of craft beer. I am starting to move more into wine for health reasons and just socially. It seems to be where things are trending But the wine experience just doesn't speak to me, right? And so I said earlier, like being a millennial woman, and I was like, I agree. Like, I don't wanna go peruse the sea of shelves and look at the, you know, pick the one with the shiny label or the right price point. And so that really got our gears going. And at the same time, we actually enrolled in a class on the wine industry and we started immersing ourselves in everything in wine. And there's a lot in California, as you can imagine, Everything that we could find. And that was where the kind of second aha moment from the company came. So the first was like, all right, tomorrow's consumer probably looks different than yesterday's in wine. You know, wine is still speaking kind of to my parents, no foul or no harm meant to them. But, you know, 750 milliliter glass bottles with the wannabe French chateau and the fancy, you know, writing, that just wasn't doing it for us. And so we said, there's opportunity there. And then through this wine industry class, we started to realize that independent wineries are the lifeblood of the wine industry. They make the vast majority of wine by volume and by price sold, but they have been cut out of their pathway to market because of distributor consolidation, retailer consolidation, and this transition in wine from D to C, meaning you come by my tasting room, you join my twice a year wine club to I have an e-commerce business, right? Selling wine online. That's when we talk about D2C and wine, there's tasting room sales. Like that is still what wine thinks about as D2C. And then there is, you know, how we kind of, (laughs) again, like I don't want to make it too generational, but like that, what we think of as a D2C experience. And so we really said, you know, it seems that there's something there to these independent producers. They have great wines. Great prices, amazing stories. We were just having the time of our lives driving around California, visiting Santa Cruz and Mendocino and Sierra Foothills, and meeting with. We ended up meeting with more than eighty wineries in our second year of business school, and from that maker was born. And we said, let's marry these two ideas. Let's create a company that you know sources wines from these best in class independent wineries, doesn't hide where it came from, right? every single can has the varietal, the vintage, the region, and the name of the winemaker and the maker that made it, right? Why we called the company maker. And we, we became the crazy can ladies. We started to test and get a lot of conviction around, you know, cans taking hold of in wine in a way they had in beer as they were in seltzer, of course, at the time. And so really that was how maker was born in some of our aha moments along the way.
1: That's so smart. I The other component is hearing like you're creating, you're riding this wave of like you're seeing what's having the craft beer cannot happen to wine that's kind of lagging. You're also essentially this new distribution channel for these winemakers, right? As far as allowing them to get out there. Talk to me more about being the crazy can ladies as far as going to these wineries and like how hard of a sell is that going to a wine and be like, hey, we're gonna come here, we're gonna can the wine for you, and then we're gonna sell it. Like, is it a no-brainer like deal decision for them? Or like how does that go? Cause you have this almost like two-sided marketplace of like you've got to get the inventory, get the wineries on board, and then it's like, okay, we've got to get the actual consumers.
0: Totally. Great question. So it was hard at first. Like winemakers, their brands, their wines are their babies. And that's where they've built brand equity. And, um, you know, we really had to convince them that we were going to respect their brands, their price point. They were going to have, you know, oversight along the way. And I'll tell you, it was hard at first for those reasons. They didn't know us. They didn't trust us. Hands had not been done in a premium way in wine yet. And so there was a leap of faith with our first four winemakers that we will never forget that group and, you know, the chances they took on us. We still do wines with three of them today. Every the single vintage, you know, we, we have great wine partners. Today, what I'll tell you, though, is we have a list of probably close to 150 wineries that are wow. interested in working with Maker to feature their wines in in our cans and truthfully on our platform. And it And what it hits on is what you touched on. It's, yes, Maker is a trustable, Instagrammable consumer brand. But underneath the surface, there's so much more there. And right. we're not only you know, bringing these independent producers' wines to consumers, we're helping consumers learn about these small producers, connect with them, follow them on Instagram, learn that they can go visit their tasting room, take their right. wines places, post about them. And so what started to happen very quickly after we launched the company, is winemakers started coming to us and saying, you know, I see that you're out there representing great wines, great brands, and I, you know, I'm interested in, in partnering with you. And so today, sourcing looks very different. It's tough. We say no to far more wines than we say yes to, actually. But in the early days, it was a leap of faith.
1: Yeah. So it's like getting people that can get you a certain volume of of lines, maybe the economics have to work out or different thresholds. Because it's like, I think of like the subscription box movement, a lot of times you could get really good deals on your side because it's great marketing for people, right? I I like this even a little bit more. I think this could be much stickier because like, the one you sent me is from like Gilbert sellers, like really nice insert where it's like, oh, we actually really did like the Cabernet. So it's like, that could be one we we get going forward, right? So it's kind of like this free marketing channel for them. Like, is, is that what helps kind of lift the business up or is there like a future plan where it's like, hey, we're gonna have all this data of what people like, we could start making our own ones.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll answer the last question first we called the company maker because it's really important to us that it exists to lift up the makers of wines you don't want wines that i make either right like i'm not a wine maker that's not what i'm good at i'm good at building a business distribution digital right like that's that's kind of our role in in the puzzle how it scales on the wine side is has been really interesting and i think for us how we maintain quality as we scale is the biggest question. But essentially what you have to know is there's two types of SKUs that we have. There are the wines that we do limited production with new winery partners, new varietals. We release them D to C only, limited drops to the club. We'll do a, you know, some kind of a feature. We did a Pride Month special release this year. Those are wines we'll do in small, very small quantities. And we do like to test to see how the wine holds up over the course of years, what customers think about it, what retail buyers think about it, right? And we've gotten the conviction to grow and scale some really interesting wines over time that we might not have otherwise because we put them in that program. So for example, Maker, you know, one of our most awarded wines is called Cabernet Pfeffer, super rare esoteric varietal from Santa Cruz and there's some implanted in France as well. We are the first people to do Cabernet Pfeffer in a can. Everybody said, you know, from the trade side of the world, what is this? Our customers were fanatical about it. So we yeah. have the conviction. Now, every year, people wait for our Cabernet Pfeffer release, right? And that's a pretty cool thing. The other SKUs that we have are the wholesale core SKUs. And those are the wines that, especially to grow the retail distribution side of the business, we can't run out of we have to have consistency year to year. We have to have super competitive pricing, right? We can do small, higher-priced wines for online, buy it if you want it, no pressure, but we have to stay competitive in the wholesale channel. And so today we have six core SKUs that we have done all of them before in prior vintages in a can. We've worked at the wineries before, and that wine program is a little different than the limited,
1: Mm-hmm. And that, that's really good context. So it's and kind of going down this linear fashion. Okay, you meet Sarah Business School. You all find five wineries, and like the plant's kind of flushed out from the start. You you beg four wineries to work with you. They do. You're canning wines. You're sitting there with this wine in a can. How do you find your first ten customer, your first hundred customers, your first thousand, like? Talk through what you did, whether it was like the non-scalable things and then the scalable things. I'm I'm interested to hear like what worked and what didn't.
0: Yeah, totally. So it's interesting. You can say it, you know, we say it now like it was almost a given. But at the time, I, I call us the crazy can ladies because people thought we were crazy. Like everybody said this would not work. They said people will not buy premium wine out of a can. Like cans are not premium by nature wineries will not give you their best, you know, flagship estate wines and they won't let you use their brand names and market it for them. And then thirdly, like you can't ship canned wine D to C, like D to C wine is hard enough and you think you can ship cans. Good luck. Right. And so what Sarah and I were doing actually was pressure testing each of these ideas in the smallest, cheapest way that we could to get conviction personally that because we thought this product should exist in the world but we're just two people. And I think what we really needed to believe before we even got to the point of convincing winemakers or going out and making those first few wines was that, yeah, people would buy craft canned wine. And so we literally went to paper stores and bought wrapping paper and cut out, like we wrote maker, we had different signature elements and we made these kind of concept cans. And we went and stood outside of Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, and we approached people, mostly women, leaving the wine aisle with their boxes. And we said, hey, do you have five minutes? We have a couple questions to ask you really quick. And if they said yes, we would say, what do you think about this? What do you like? What don't you like? How much would you pay for it? And we started to understand what elements of the product were most resonant and who was our customer, right? We're starting at two huge insights from standing outside of Trader Joe's with Coca-Cola cans wrapped in wrapping paper. And so from that, we said, all right, people are going to buy premium canned wine. We believe it. Like We're going to bet the farm on that. And we went out, we met with these 80 wineries. We got conviction that they would give us their best juice, you know, all of the things. And then thirdly, you know, you have to prove out kind of the go to market. So what was interesting for us is we tried to test and iterate as much as we could before launching the company, before creating the physical product, because unlike software and unlike so many other things, you know, services or you name it, once you create a food and beverage product, especially wine, it's you're stuck with it. Like you're going to be selling that and you can't change it. It tastes what it tastes like and it looks what it looks like. And so we put a lot of time in up front to test our ideas so that when we had V1 of our can designs, people were like, oh my gosh, this this brand has probably been around for a while because it was really thoughtful and really spoke to our target customer out of the gate, right? Then it's like, okay, now we have to go out and make these wines. That was a whole other, we thought we could do, the get the, the license. I filed the, the winery liquor permit at my family's house because it was a permanent address and I did it myself. We, we created V1 of a website with a contract you know, designer over time and we had to create a box to ship canned wine. That was our biggest oversight. We thought we could do all of those things and can about 30,000 cans of wine in six months. We were a little ambitious. Where we found ourselves with was with thirty thousand cans of wine, a website, and a license, and no box to ship them with because trying to make a box during the holiday, you know, timing was crazy. So we actually we finished business school in spring of twenty nineteen, and we started launching the company product and market in January of twenty twenty. And I'll stop there because that's like the pre-story. But we launched at a very interesting time and you can imagine the market changed on us pretty wildly too.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah, you potentially actually have some tailwinds as as it work, can work in your favor, which is super interesting. But it's so funny, like we're manufacturing some products and man, the time to manufacture pains me. Packaging is so much harder than you realize and well, I'm not even dealing with consumables. And so I will say like what you've sent me, like the unboxing experience, the packaging, all that was extremely well done. Even if people go to your website right now, like the brand does speak to be very premium. Like we do this for a living. I'm very impressed with what you've done. But, and I love, so one thing, a lot of people when they have ideas, like how do you validate an idea? And it's easy to sit behind your computer and think you're working hard and do kind of busy work and research. I love that you like got out there, you went to trader joe's you're harassing people in the wine aisle with your your can with wrapping paper because it's it's awkward right to like don't do that oh, but like you comfortable have, like, yeah especially if it's not your natural state to be like hey excuse me you have a second as they're like take like grabbing their pretzels filled with peanut butter which is my favorite snack at trader joe's so you you do this you you're you're kind of figuring out packaging or you're not you covet hits What does it look like? to? Are you pausing or are you like leaning into this like online ordering movement or are things halting because you can't make stuff?
0: Yeah. So at the time we had finished our initial production. So we had over 30,000 cans of wine. It was myself and Sarah. We were about to meet our third co-founder, Zoe, who hustled her way in then and has been critical ever, ever since. But we really we didn't see. Pausing as an option, I would say it was scary at first because we built out the go to market plan in a world that existed pre pandemic. And the way you launched a wine company was through retail, wholesale, and events, a lot, a lot of events. So we had all these events lined up over 2020, you know, coming out events, concerts, activations, being in the cool places, and all of that was canceled by mid-March and we were doing no sales, like we were at the very beginning. And so it was truthfully the three of us, 30,000 cans of wine, and we kind of leaned into what we were good at and we got lucky, right? Like as you said, there were tailwinds, people were stuck at home wanting to drink more. The question and challenge we had was, how do you make those people aware of you, right? And as a growth marketer, this is something you like you think about in a million ways every single day. But we really said, you know, hey, we're really good at D2C. We built this box. We had three pack sizes. We were ready to start shipping wine. And we had a unique experience in that every box came from six different wineries, had six different varietals, right? So you could kind of sample without committing And then another strength we had was my background was actually in B2B sales. I was in consulting, but I ended up being a BD, you know, salesperson in consulting. And so I kind of had this, you know, hunch. And one of our, some of our friends, our our customers and clients came to us and said, do you do virtual wine tastings? And Sarah and I looked at each other and we said, we do now. And we started hosting virtual wine tastings all day and all night like you would not believe. In 2020, we did more than 170 virtual wine tastings. Coinbase was our largest customer and client that year. And we basically launched a D2C company on the back of a B2B channel just to get us through that crazy wild time. And we could only sell in California. So we were only targeting companies at teams in California. So it was a wild, it was a wild ride, but I think what it allowed us, it forced us to figure out D2C. And then it allowed us to have that focus, honestly, on just one channel, one go to market. And we rode that all the way to selling out of wine in our launch here in California alone.
1: Amazing. I love it when either like B2B companies apply a B2C tactic or a D2C company applies a B2B tactic and well done as far as like leveraging your unfair advantage of knowing about b2b sales to like so many companies like crap how do i engage my remote team with something that isn't lame and that actually sounds quite interesting because you're closing coinbase they're having to buy wine for 10 20 100 employees like that's that's a really really well done strategy there very nice well
0: yeah Um, no thank you and and not to make another plug for business school but you know that was a time where our network was so incredibly helpful We blasted our colleges, my sorority, any organizations we'd been a part of because and we said, you know, we're launching our company. We do virtual wine tastings. Is your team stuck at home? We can help you out, you know, and for the first couple of years of the pandemic, that was I mean, it was really special. We were bringing joy and levity and a delicious product and a meaningful experience to people in a pretty dark and trying time. And so looking back on it, no, I mean, it completely reshaped our company, but that was one of the biggest challenges I think we've gone through to date, and it was getting out of the gate.
1: Yeah. Oh, very cool. So you're crushing virtual wine tasting. You're selling across California. Talk about today. Where is your mind at as far as Maker goes and like the growth story? And put it from the lens of like, like, well, what's the goal here? Is it like, hey, we're going down this venture back path, like raising money? Or is there a point where it's like, actually, no, like, we're we're going a different path. So I know I kind of piled a few questions in there, but interested to see, like, where your mind's at as far as thinking through where you're at now and growth.
0: Yeah, totally. So to get us up to speed from like 2020 to now, we launched our Can Club subscription program and that has grown to almost half of our sales in the last couple of years when you have wow. strong retention and you have, you know, truthfully like an, an acquisition model like virtual wine tastings that was a that was a really really strong unlock for us from 0 to 200 club members to, you know, we now have more than a couple thousand in the club and so today that has been I mean, we are shipping more online canned wine than anyone else in the world, and our Can club members are incredible. They are well-educated wine consumers. They're curious. They're not snobby, but they care about where their wine comes from. They engage. They post pictures all the time about what they're cooking with Maker or the hikes they're taking Maker on, where they're enjoying it and they join me the, meet the winemaker zooms and they get to know our winemakers personally cool. some of them actually yeah. go out and visit the wineries in person and so i share that to say our mission is also working yes we have a very healthy growing business and and we have a you know a growth plan and trajectory but at the end of the day we call the company maker we consider ourselves a mission driven wine company because as we are growing and more successful we should be doing good and creating good change in in our space and, and with our winemakers. And I feel confident in saying that we are. Where we want to go is to be able to, you know, bring good canned wine to all the places it deserves to live, to give as many winemakers as we can the opportunity to capture the fruits and minds and palates of people all over. But that's hard. We can't, you know, we don't want to be wine. Well, either. They have their own business model. And so today for us, you know, it's, it's truthfully about this is a new category and we're first movers in premium canned wine. And so, you know, this year we've shifted largely into a wholesale push. You'll find us in venues, restaurants, hotels, golf courses, ski hills, and grocery yeah. stores all over the West Coast. But we need to meet our customers where they are you know, that's I think the the future of any relevant brand. And so for us, I don't know where we'll be in five years, but if we are, you know, if more people are drinking good canned wine and if more like real winemakers and wineries are getting more products out there, like that's
1: our big win. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very impressed. And people should go check out the Can Club, even just from like a conversion standpoint. You guys are putting on a masterclass because you're going for a subscription. It's not like monthly, it's quarterly, which is great. It's super approachable in price from like 97 to 172. Uh really nice experience. So so well done there as far as I go. And I'm such a huge fan of with any company, why is now the right Time. Like timing is everything. The worst is if you're too early. Sometimes you can be too late, but timing this movement towards people ready to consume the uh, wine in a can, right? And how you can own that. Because if you lift the category, you win. Um, so, so well done there. Um, I've, I've got a question for you that I like to end with. I like to ask everybody What is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? And that could even be like something that's actually nice or a a time when someone gave you some tough love or you didn't want to hear it, but you needed to hear it.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give another cop-out two answers to this one. I'm going to first say (laughs) the nicest thing anyone has ever done is my co-founder, Sarah, looking at me and saying, like, you deserve to be a founder. And I see that in you. And that was life-changing. And I think that's super powerful and surrounding yourself with people who push you to see more in yourself. Like that was maybe nice isn't the right word, but like, you know, that was invaluable. And I'm so grateful to Sarah for it. What is the nicest thing? I think that like, you know, today when you ask like, all right, what, you know, nice in my professional career, when our customers reach out to us and share their love for the product or truthfully, like go above and beyond, we have customers that cross stitch knit our cans and, send us you know, framed pictures of their artwork. They make us gift bags. And like these are people that are just so connected to what we care about and the mission that every time they do things like that, and I could name 20 of them off the top of my head of customers that have been with us since our very earliest days. And wine brings people together. That's why we enjoy drinking it. We enjoy learning about it and sharing about it. And so the fact that we're actually bringing together Wine lovers like us, amazing wine producers, and that people find so much joy in it. That has just been like the nicest, most meaningful compliment of my life, I think.
1: Right? Yeah, you can have life. a rough day. But no, that's a good You can have a rough day, but you see like a happy customer say something like, okay, all right, this, this, this feels good. Well, we'll super impress him. I'm I'm going through my wine can club selection right now. I'm trying to decide. Which reds to get in? We're kind of getting into red season as it's getting a little colder. So we got to figure that out. But if people want to follow you or they want to learn more about Maker Wine, where where should we point them?
0: Absolutely. We are at Maker Wine on Instagram and TikTok. We're at Maker Wine Co on Twitter. And we're also online, makerwine.com. As I said, you can check out the club. You can check out, we do special event ordering. We do corporate events and virtual wine tasting still. And just keep in touch if you want to. If you have any questions, we still manage all of our Instagram and email channels directly. So uh, always love to meet new people and and get your thoughts.
1: Kendra, this was so fun. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation too, Jim. This has been a blast.
1: I'll give a few plugs. First... I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over a hundred startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the children's hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation, see if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.